Hello everyone. Welcome to I Love You Anyway. Uh, my name is Justin White. It's been a really long time since I've been here with you all. However many are left. Um, big spaces between the episodes and uh, I hope I haven't lost all my listeners as a result. But um, here I am. I'm back. Life's been funky, as most of you would probably agree, I think. And uh, sometimes it's hard keeping up with things. I've been very busy with my ups and downs and all arounds. And, um, you know, things move slowly. I've been undergoing some massive uh, changes, some big shifts in my uh, spiritual awareness um, and also just dredging up some old ancient feelings and beliefs and uh, patterns and resentments and old anger and all this shit that I'm actually in the process of letting go of but in doing so I'm witnessing it all right before my eyes and um so yeah there's been some there's been some heavy shit and uh also of course in correspondent corresponding to that in correlation with that in conjunction with that with those happenings um all these material things have started to break and disintegrate and uh just everything in my life seems to be falling apart but it's not it doesn't feel scary or bad it feels like it's meant to be it feels like i'm breaking open the old bullshit and leaving it as dust in the wind my friends all we are is dust in the wind um so my guest today at long last um as this was recorded some time ago uh, my friend Greg McClellan, um, whom I've only come to know in the last, well, I guess it's been a couple of years now, but we've never met in person, only over a computer screen and on a telephone, if you've heard of that. Um, so yeah, it was great to get to know him better this way and talk about some stuff. And uh, one of the stuffs we talked about uh, Greg will get to at the end it's his, the most epic album recording of all time I think uh, and he'll explain the details way better than I could but it's impressive to say the least uh, and some of the music from that uh, massive undertaking is presented here it was hard to choose because there are so many tracks but um I picked a few that I think will fit, and I added a couple of my own, as I am wont to do. So I will now cease with the yammering, and let's talk to my friend Greg.
Did you um, did you have a good childhood in general? I had an idyllic childhood, all things considered. I had, I was. Uh, Born in 1968, my, I've got an older brother, Griff, who's two years older, and a younger sister, Michelle, who's three years younger. And uh, mom and dad stayed married um, until my dad died. And, and um, yeah, it was a suburban, suburban house, um, excellent school districts. I was able to enjoy that, and uh, no complaints about the education at that point. So that's good. Mm -hmm. Did your dad die while you were an adult or yeah, uh, March 29th, 2002. Yeah, it's certainly into my adulthood. Mm -hmm. Okay. And did you guys get along? Yeah, my, my dad and I got along very well. Um, he was uh, he was born in 1940. And so when he was 15 years old, 1955 is when Elvis and rock and roll hit. So he was buying up 45s as fast as he could get them. And, uh, enjoyed uh, doo-wop and, and uh, Little Richard, Elvis Presley, all the rock and roll. And fortunately, he saved all those records. So some of my earliest memories are, are dad bringing the big box of records out of the closet and going out in the living room, we'd play them. And so, uh, yeah, it was just a, an excellent education into, into pop music of the 50s. And it's woven deeply into the fabric of my, my, my life. And, uh, That's cool. In kindergarten, I was five years old. Uh, I found this document or this paper. Um, I wanted to be Little Richard when I grew up at five years old. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> you wrote that on one of your school assignments? Well, uh, it was kind of a progressive uh, preschool. They'd follow the kids around once in a while and just write down what they did and said. And I, I said, I want to be Little Richard when I grow up, and these guys can be my band. That's awesome. Did you, uh, did you start playing an instrument? early? My mom was a piano teacher. She had a, so we've had a piano in the living room um, my entire life. I don't recall not knowing the names of the keys. Um, I remember she had, I went through a lot of the books, learning the, the notes and, but I really enjoyed just experimenting, um, pushing down on the depress and getting the, the reverb and the uh, effects of the piano and just exploring some of the sounds. So there was always a piano around. That's really great. Yeah. Did you ever take formal lessons with her or anyone? Uh, she tried to give me formal lessons, but uh, I, again, I, I retained a lot and, and had some good technique, but I didn't really uh, learn the traditional sense per se. It was much more experimental and uh, and uh, trying to figure out Fats, what Fats Domino was doing or Little Richard and on the piano. Uh -huh. So she didn't want to teach me rock and roll. She wanted to give me the formal education and I, uh, it was kind of off and on over the years, but um, yeah, it's probably hard to take a class, take a, take lessons from your own mother yeah. in anything I would imagine. Yeah. My, she taught all three of us and uh, my sister paid the most attention to the, the classical forms and things. And is a reasonably adept piano player to this day. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And then did you, were you in bands or anything when you were young? Yes, I uh, I wanted to learn to play drums. So when we moved to a, a new house in Kirkland, in when I was going into first grade, um, there was a local music store that had drum lessons and guitar lessons. So for six straight years, I once a week I'd go take lessons at Mills Music in Bothell, and uh, my brother would take guitar lessons. The, uh, the frustrating thing was that he was very strict about the the reading the the snare drum music off the paper. 
And so um, there's a drum set sitting in the corner there in this practice room, and he never let me sit on it in six years. He never let me sit down and, and just try Seriously? it out. Yeah, he was very strict about it. He's kind of a hippie guy, long red hair and a beard. And I thought he'd be a little more open to that, but he was just adamant that I learn everything out of the, the, the snare drum book, which I did, you know, odd meter, um, syncopation, um, proper stick technique. and. Uh, but so, did you have a drum set that you could play anywhere? No. <laughs> Not oh, in, my God. That, no. Sounds, that sounds like torture to me. Yeah, it was torture. I remember in third grade, my my father considered uh, picking up a drum set. We went up to a neighbor's house up the street. The guy said he was selling it. And uh, so he sat down behind the kit, the owner of the kit, and started playing it and then stood up. I can't sell these. So I didn't even get to sit behind the kit then. So it was always just out of reach. <laughs> That's so unfair. <laughs> and there wasn't like a school jazz band or anything that you could? Uh, not an elementary school. Um, when, when I was in fourth grade, uh, I was able to borrow a Scooby-Doo bass drum with a cymbal on it. And my brother and I learned, you know, Johnny Be Good and worked out some songs, uh, Rip It Up by Ace Fraley. <laughs> oh, nice. And a local kid named Peter Groom uh, hopped on keyboards. So we played the talent show, but I played the drum set standing up and sort of emulated having a ride or a hi-hat by just my snare technique. So, um, and that was fun. You know, I can still, I still have Polaroid memories in my mind of uh, just looking out and seeing all my friends out there in the gymnasium and mostly smiling and nodding their heads. So that yeah, was a fun experience. That's nice. But, but did you like during that six years where you were like a theoretical drummer, were you just like itching to get a pair of sticks that you could just hit something with? I can't understate how badly I wanted a drum set. And um, it was the summer after sixth grade, my brother's friend, Brian, his dad just gave him a drum set and he'd never even played drums in his life. So suddenly he's the drummer. And uh, my brother said, well, if you want to be in the band, you got to play something else. So I went to Mills Music and was looking at the basses, and I was picking up a bass, bought a Fender Precision copy. And my drum teacher, Steve, saw me. He goes, hey, what are you doing? And I'm saying, well, I want to be in a band, and the only opening is a, is a bass player, so I'm going to play this. And I immediately stopped taking drum lessons and switched to bass guitar. Nice. And then you could actually play it. Yes. <laughs> And did you find that the rhythm, all the rhythm technique that you had learned translated nicely? I'm so happy that I learned all of that because, uh, yeah, especially in my interest in prog music later and, and just expansive or odd meter, and that really came in handy with uh, having learned that uh, on the snare drum. That's cool. Did you kind of go apeshit a little bit when you like finally could make sound with yeah. the instrument? Yeah, I did. Uh, in fact, uh, we played... Uh, the, the talent show in seventh grade, I was playing with ninth graders. We did crazy train and breaking the law in front of the entire junior high school, North Shore junior high. And I have a cassette recording of, it and it's pretty darn good for a, a bunch of kids. That's cool. You still have the tape. I do. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. The consummate collector. Yes. Oh, that's just the that's beginning. Yeah, well, we'll get into that a bit. I, I think you got to sh share, or we could do it now if you want to. If you want to talk about your, your love of collecting, uh, I guess we can get to that. I, um, I just I stuck with the bass. I finally learned to. I put on some round wound strings and lowered the action after a year or so, and, and suddenly it was a much easier to play. And yeah, just uh, started hooking up with local friends, guitar players, and and. Um, I had a, a knack for writing lyrics at the time and cause I, I love paying attention to lyrics and the concepts of music and 
or what was going on in a song and the story it would tell or plays on words. So um, had a strong interest in that and was always very good with English. So that came in handy too with lyric writing. Nice. Yeah. Is that something that you just came to on your own or was there some insight or inspiration that came uh, from outside? It was probably a girl that I wanted to write a poem to, and then I just suddenly liked writing. And my brother was uh, kind of an intellect. He was into E.E. E. Cummings in junior high school and handed me the book. So I started noticing how much fun you could have with, with words and phrasing and placement of words, non-standard stanzas, and uh, just how flexible the English language could be. That's cool. Do you think any of your drum lessons fed that as well? Just the like, different different rhythms and cadences i think so yeah that and just be just memorizing every song i could i could learn as far as just how, how it went i had an encyclopedic knowledge of a 50s rock and roll but you know kindergarten first grade so um always paying attention to the lyrics um when i could understand them right <laughs> uh, and then uh, did you ever have your dad explain did you ask him questions about what songs were about uh here and there yeah he would i'd ask him uh what certain things were is more that my parents would hear what I was listening to and, and, and not like it. I remember making love by, by kiss. They didn't like me listening to that song and didn't understand why I didn't quite know what that meant. Or <laughs> so just a, a lot of innocence, uh, to some of the, um, more, uh, risque lyrics and all right. the, all the innuendo in the fifties was so clever. I mean, they, they really had to bend over backwards to, to get their point across without, uh, tipping off the, the authorities, censors. the censors. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't think I understood much of that at all for you know until adulthood, and I loved it. I mean, I listened to a lot of that. Um, well, I grew up with Motown, thankfully, nice. just being near Detroit. And, right. um, I just loved the sound, but I didn't. I don't think I even questioned what it was about. Really, you just it was about feeling it. Right. And. Uh, um, um, Little Richard, a little Richard going "ow" was always a thrill. You know? <laughs> totally, it was yeah, the primal, uh, primal thing one can do, I suppose. Is that? Do you think that's why you wanted to be him? I, yeah, the energy of it. I've always been drawn to the heavier. Um, I don't know if just being hyperactive. I mean, I, I might have been hyperactive. I ate a lot of candy and sugar growing up. That was uh, that was a, a constant. My, I remember my grandma would give me cold coffee. And then wonder why I was bouncing off the walls. Um, <laughs> Holy shit. So, she, how old were you when she was giving you coffee? Elementary school, um, up until yeah, junior high school or so. So I uh, was just always drawn to yeah, energy in music. Little, little Richard, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis's early stuff before he went into the army. Uh, anything that had a real driving strong beat to it but, um, was just, I was just magnetic to my ears. Nice. And then you went sort of like the hard rock route after that as you got older? Yeah, yeah. Kiss, Sticks, Cheap Trick, um, anything that had some heaviness to it. I mean, I like ballads and enjoyed, you know, pretty music as well, but it just it would just light up whenever music would get heavier and heavier. And that, uh, it's just kind of fun to watch the evolution of music in, in pop culture to as things just got heavier and heavier and watch the benchmarks as things became more and more powerful in that way. So I was always drawn to, you know, metal or hard rock instinctively, or even uh, sound effects records or, you know, Stravinsky, um, anything that had 
some, uh, some, I, I don't know, just fire to it. It's just really, really, really uh, attractive to me. Yeah. Do you remember there being any specific songs or bands that just like utterly changed your life? Like you just couldn't believe what you were hearing? Well, yeah, there's been several times where my jaws hit the floor just at the stunning uh, updating of uh, that which is heavy. I remember the Dead Kennedys when I, I was watching horror films. I love horror movies and monster movies. And there's a local show, Nightmare Theater, that was on Channel 7 every Friday night that have a double feature. And I remember late at night, uh, there was a commercial that was actually meant to tell kids to stay away from this kind of stuff. And uh, they were playing a Welcome to 1984. Are you ready for the Third World War? And I, I saw the label on the record. I had to find out what that was. So I called Tower Records in the U District the next day and recited. He goes, oh, that's that's the Dead Kennedys. So I hopped on a bus at you know seventh grade and went all the way down to Seattle, 15 miles away, and and picked up in God We Trust Incorporated in 81. And yeah, that uh, that music that fast, and, and it was just a blur. I couldn't believe they were doing what they were doing. So uh, that was a big step was the, the Dead Kennedys. That's so funny that they were, they were trying to steer you away from it but they used their music and it utterly <laughs> pulled you in. Yeah, I still it's remember the, the commercial. The kid uh, took the needle off the record and then put his head in his hands like he was really depressed or just overwhelmed with, with grief. And right. That, and that was attractive to me for some reason. So um, uh, I remember seeing the Sex Pistols on television in 77, some clip from a news uh, piece, and my mom was just horrified at the God save the queen, she ain't no human being line and uh mm-hmm. i remember her kicking me out of the, the room another time when foreigners hot-blooded came on because she was so appalled by the lyrics that she didn't want me to hear it so immediately i had to go out and buy it the next day <laughs> that's <laughs> um, how it works right right off limits equals must have to money. I had a paper route from the time I was in second grade all the way up until through junior high school. So I always had some, some disposable money to buy records and things. And um, that, you know, getting up at five in the morning, braving the elements and delivering, you know, 70 papers every day, kind of developed a good work ethic. And yeah, no kidding. You yeah. started in second grade, second or third grade. My brother started it and then he got tired of it. So I, I uh, took it over from him. And that was wow. as, as early as third grade or so. So I don't think I started mine till fifth or sixth grade. 
Yeah, it's just a... I don't think I made it through more than two winters. Two, two Michigan winters waking up at 5 a.m. seven days a week was enough. Oh, my. It was... I, used to have my I, used, I used to have Jason sleep over at my house. Well, we slept at each other's houses you know, regularly. Almost every week, one of us would be at one, one of the others. And uh, <laughs> it would, I, I don't remember planning it. I mean, probably I did to some extent, or at least subconsciously, but I, I can't tell you how many weekend mornings I begged him to come with, you know, like, please, please get up and come with me and then on a weekend that he slept over at my house and we stayed up till all hours. Uh, it wasn't exactly fair and he never wanted to come, but he did, he did suffer through it with me a few times or more than a few. Oh, that's great. I've got a similar experience with my friend, uh, Jim. Yeah. He'd stay over and I'd beg with him to come with me too. And every other time he might, but, uh, Depends on whether it was raining or not, but yeah, it sure did uh, instill a sense of uh, duty and and follow through, and again, a work ethic that I think still serves me to this day. Um, That's good. Yeah. I think I might have I think I might have dropped some of the work ethic that it instilled in me. <laughs> I think I resented it a little too much. Did Did you have to collect from your customers? Oh, that was a nightmare. Yes, and it's just amazing how the lengths people would go to to avoid a nine year old. You know to right. Or, or they would just flat out decline to pay you sometimes in my experience they're just like no i'm not paying wow. and there's nothing you can do you have no recourse when you're that age yeah more often than not uh, people would pay up and the tips are always nice but uh yeah it was just a, a struggle on top of getting up in the morning going out in the evening to collect but i can't I believe that was the system like that's what they made you do go collect your own income as a kid you know? Yeah. It's, it seems crazy to me. It's hard to imagine even, I mean, I've got a, a son and uh, I, was, I couldn't picture him in the late nineties going out and, and delivering papers on his own just because of the, just the way society sort of changed or gotten a little more um, concerning for the safety of kids. So. Yeah. How much of that do you think is actually the case and how much of it is our, you know, are, are thinking that's the case. Well, yeah, it's uh, it's probably a bit of both, you know, just um, being aware of the nefariousness of some people and the things you hear. But by and large, it's probably probably safe enough most of the time. Um, but I just I wish he would have had that experience. I think it might have you know helped uh, helped him get some work ethic early on. But uh, that's yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot about. I mean, there are a lot of experiences I had that I can't believe I was able to have. And I sort of want my daughter to have experienced those things, but I'm also pretty relieved that she didn't, you know, wasn't just thrown into the world to figure it out. But having done it myself, I'm, I'm really grateful. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. Uh, there was a, a local a kid was murdered here in uh, March of 1983. So I was still, I still had my paper out at that point. And it, uh, it seemed to just kind of blow over really quickly. We all knew who he was. He went to a different school district than me, but he was at the arcade that I would, I would go play and researching that murder in the past few years, there's a, a Facebook group on it that where everyone's trying to still solve it to this day. I'm, I just can't believe how many people from my neighborhood are either dead in jail, maimed, um, 
And it turns out a kid who rode my bus ended up being the first uh, black serial killer in United States history. Uh, <laughs> um, wow. Yeah, the, the Crossroads killer. He, he was active in the early 90s. And yeah, I remember him from the school bus. He used to get up in front of the bus and blinded by the light would come on when it was a new song and you'd get half the bus singing this part of the chorus and the other half and the bus driver's laughing. It was just a wonderful time and he ends up becoming a, a murderer. That's bizarre. Do you think there was something in the water in your neighborhood or what, what was the, <laughs> why, why so prevalent? My brother and I have discussed that and I just don't know. It's really hard to, hard to say. Um, next to our neighbor, both of those boys hung themselves um, later out of high school and yeah just uh i just can't believe how many people went south and how much drugs and, and problems there were for a lot of my was it sort of an economically depressed area no actually not it was just absolutely dead center middle class um my brother speculated there's a lot of people renting houses so a lot of the people that couldn't normally buy a house would rent and we'd get people in and out of these houses and sometimes they'd have some kids with them or kind of messed up and i saw a lot of a lot of interesting, you know, crime and fights and what I guess is the usual experience in the seventies, but, uh, um, yeah, yeah, there was a lot of bullying, mm -hmm. um, some cruelty, but, uh, again, no murders other than Pat Cress in, in 83 that I was aware of. So. And that, that is still a cold case. It is. Um, they just ran a, a recent segment on it. Uh, they're trying to revive it about a year ago and I've, spent some time researching it and adding what I remember. And boy, it sure would be interesting to solve that after all these years. But again, three quarters of the suspects were either dead or, or just gone. Wow. Yeah. And at the time, were you terrified to be out and about or to go to that arcade or anything? After about a month or so, it just sort of enough things were happening in life. They just kind of blew over. Um, it's, it's interesting how quickly that, that dropped off the, the map and off of uh, people discussing it. I, again, I didn't know him too well. I remember playing doubles with him on pinball games and video games a few times. I knew who he was, but uh, again, it just, just kind of dropped off the map. His life became ever more involving. Yeah. yeah it's interesting how that, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and it was a pretty weird place and a small enough town that you felt like you kind of knew everybody and there were things like that um that you know what i don't know if they ever resolved in a in a legal way but that you just you just stopped thinking about it or talking about it after a while and i guess that's just part of being a kid you just do you're just moving on yeah that's uh Kind of disturbing in retrospect, and at the time it was too. But uh, just it's uh, it's nice to see some success success stories come out of the neighborhood, aside from just all the the, uh, <laughs> the, the yeah. sadness and loss. So, what what are some of the su successes? Oh, um, one of my neighbors up the street, her son was up until the pandemic was the lead of uh, Rock of Ages over in, in New York. Um, the lady from Slater Kinney, I forget her her name, but she. Uh, yeah, she went on to become an actress. She did pretty well. Um, and just I've, several of my friends have gone on to become quite you know wealthy with uh, Microsoft, Amazon, Costco, and all of these corporations, you know, um, being homespun and grown here out of 
this area. Right. Um, one of my friends from high school, we used to have a lot of fun, some mischief together, but I believe he's Jeff Bezos' right-hand man, or one of them. So he's doing well. Yeah, no kidding. Did he go up to space with Jeff? feature or something yeah we did nearly every weekend for two or three years we would uh, uh maybe other week yeah every other weekend or so we'd go to the cinemas and check out the up uh, the, the double features and yeah we caught all the originals horror you know all the friday the 13th through one through four and just i mean so many so many titles maybe that has something to do with it, all those films yeah i was gonna ask if the if, if any of your interests came out of your experience in reality gosh or if, if something, there's a tie in there. Yeah, I think he was just trying to bond with me in any way he could, and I just had an interest in them. And he only flat out said no to a couple of films, Maniac, and another one was uh, Dressed to Kill. We had to specifically miss the first 20 minutes, according to the, from the, the, the paper review. So he was conscientious of it, but at the same time, he was probably just thinking, geez, is this what it takes to bond with my son? I'll do it, but... Imagine. So did he even, do you, do you know if he even wanted to see those or was he strictly doing it out of his desire to hang with you? Uh, most, I think it was mostly just the desire to hang with me. I remember when like Close Encounters came out or uh, Thief, several ones that he wanted to see, we'd, we'd see those of course, but by and large it was just uh, whatever the next pairing of films was at the, uh, was, was it Alderwood or Linwood? Yeah, Linwood Theater. So That's cool. That's a good dad. Yeah. So supporting horror films and rock and roll. And um, yeah, I'd also record with my friends. I've got um, cassette recordings. I would would experiment with tape all the way back to reel to reel at my grandma's house in in kindergarten. And I'd make these tapes with my friends. I would direct them. And uh, a lot of times the sugar would, we'd all fly off the handle and call them hyper, hyper tapes. But uh, so just these, (laughs) these, 
demented stories and, and characters. And again, I still have all of these tapes. I still plan to transfer them and but just hours, I mean, dozens of hours of, of these hyperactive hyper tapes where we, uh, I'd experiment making music or sound effects. My brother says I could play the pause button like a whammy bar and just extract the most uh, horrific and ghastly sounds just out of, you know, changing the speed of the tape. Um, I went back and harvested a lot of those sound effects when I did the uh, soundtrack for Bruce Bickford's Castle, the clay animation. So a lot of the gory sounds you hear on there were made by a hyperactive fifth grader. That's amazing. And just wove them into the sound and lined them up with whatever was happening on screen and then stretched them digitally to make sure that every single slice or smash was perfectly uh, <laughs> aligned with the sound effect. That's really cool. Do you want to talk about how you came to know Bruce? Yes. Uh, I, uh, whenever Baby Snakes came out on video, I believe it was 91, early 91, I, I uh, reserved it at Video Oasis in Kenmore. And then I brought it over to my friend Chris Hogan's house and we watched both tapes. It was a double tape. And I was just immediately floored with the, with the animation that I saw. I mean, I love Frank's music and I was captivated, but Bruce just sent me over the, over the moon with what he was achieving with Clay. I was a big fan of Willis O'Brien and, and uh, Harry Harryhausen, the King Kong and the Sinbad films. And so uh, it was on a lark. Just I had no reason to think Bruce lived in Seattle. It was never mentioned Baby Snakes, but I went over and grabbed the white pages, flipped it to Bickford, and there was a B. Bickford, 878-8510. And so I called it and his machine answered the phone, but there, there was the voice from the film. And I just offered my services and just was probably just being a fanboy, just saying how moved I was and amazed by his work. And I appreciated the George Maley's, Maley's uh, reference with the trip to the moon. And that's what I think got Bruce is that I pegged that, that reference and no one had ever said that to him. So he, he called me back the next day. And within a week, I was out there admiring his, uh, his, uh, his garage, just full floor to ceiling, front to back of all of his clay creatures, millions of things. So um, I brought a video camera and I fortunately grabbed, you know, some early footage of that, but we ended up becoming friends and I chat with him weekly for the next 29 years and um, wow. had to wait for technology to catch up around 2002 or three when I first got a laptop in Vegas where I could line up his uh, comic that Frenches your mind line animation and start putting music to it. So that was the first soundtrack that I had actually done. Um, there was some experimenting before that with a microphone into a big suitcase size VHS, but uh, yeah, finally a technology caught up where I was able to, to do it at home. That's really cool. I didn't realize that you just, you just called him up. Out of the blue. That's really great. Yeah. In, in retrospect, he was looking for some things to do. His mom had just died and he had just purchased the house. So I think he was branching out. He came to my bachelor party and took notes. I've got video of him sitting in the corner with a clipboard, looking at everybody and <laughs> writing down what he was thinking. And um, did, came... did that later turn into anything that you know of? Um, it's uh, we transferred the footage. There's a, a guy named Isaac who's potentially going to be working on a on a, a documentary. It's still totally up in the air, but I have the footage and I've got the footage the next day at the wedding when he came to the reception and he's wearing a nice green suit and. So young, and I mean, for you know, seeing him so young, it just amazes me how much time had gone by. Yeah. Wow. 
But do you, do you know if the notes that he took at your bachelor party were notes for a story or for a um, future animation? That night was the only that was the only night of my entire life where I passed out drinking. So I don't know whatever became of that, or when okay. he when he left or anything. So, <laughs> um, but I yeah, I blacked out that night not too long after uh, um, the band's finished. But I, I was teaching bass at Seattle Music. And my students' band, uh, Tasty Gore, played my bachelor party. Nice. And, <laughs> That's a good name. Um, so when you would hang out with Bruce, was it usually centered around uh, doing the creating together, or did you also just hang out? Um, well, at first, yeah, he was, uh, he was happy to have the help. Um, if you look at Castle and you see all the scenes around the 10-minute mark with the hand reaching in, stabbing and squishing a bunch of uh, his his conquistadors. Yeah. I'd go out there and, uh, and we'd film together. So I, we did, uh, I probably visited him 10 times and we were, I was, we were adding more and more to the film. I became a father very young at, uh, Valentine's day, 92. I became a father. So that, that's the wedding and all of that. So that started taking up more of my time. It became more of a, a phone, a phone friendship. And I'd visit him, you know, once every month or two, and then he'd come over and we'd watch a movie or something or as much of a movie as he could sit through because he just didn't like to sit still that long and look at other right. things. But uh, mostly it was discussion of film, music, things going on, um, what he was up to. And of course, uh, you know, eventually when the technology caught up, started discussing more about the work and what he wanted out of the soundtrack or how long things would be ready for transfers. I'd run, you know, run to flying spot and help the, uh, move tapes or bring him stuff on my way down there and just keep the ball rolling. But he was, uh, more and more, he was getting into, into a line animation. Um, I think the clay became cumbersome if he didn't have a crew to help him. So, uh, lots of the, most of the castle clay animation was done by probably 99 or 2000. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's your hand that comes in. Yes. Castle, <laughs> right? That's cool. I, I just always assumed it was his. It's interesting to to know know you and put put a hand with the name, so to speak. Yeah, it's in the credits as Giant with Swords, and uh, I did the credit or the title sequence at the end to get all the credits in there. And there were a couple other people that helped out. Greg Lerner did the bite, the burger bite, and uh, several oh, of his yeah. other friends were. They'd stick a hand in here and there, but yeah, that was a uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, I remember the blood running out of my arm and my arm going numb after two hours of just you know, slowly reaching in and, and uh, making sure that it's keeping on being as accurate as possible. So He would just ask you to hold it there in place and like wait while he manipulated figures? Yes. And so I'd have to move it and keep it in place and he'd slide, he'd reach into the frame or move it. He had a little uh, 90 degree frame where he'd slide the the scene in front of him and then he'd He'd make the adjustments and then slide it back into place, and my hand would have to stay where it was, or just move incrementally a little bit further, or the fingers start to close. And so I did my best just to retain the retain the, the flow of motion. It seems to have worked out mainly. So I think so. Yeah, I'm gonna have to go back and watch it now, now that I know you're famous. Hey now, <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. So all right, well let's uh, let's segue into your your collections like what, what sort of um you, i know you were interested in music and film 
but were you just right from the start, just collecting whatever you could? Uh, records, certainly. I think it began with my dad's box of records as having this, uh, this amazing treasure box of all these different labels and songs and sounds. It just, the more, the, the more, the merrier. So I began to collect LPs, you know, started with the oldies, but goodies, and then, uh, moved on to again, you know, kiss records uh, in first grade. Remember when my mom, sorry, mom, but weeping when I bought uh, love gun, just all the, all these women orgasmically displayed on the floor before the, before the band and. Anyway, she put up with a lot. So, yeah, it was just one record after another. I'd, I'd save them, keep them in good condition. To this day, those records are playable, and the covers the covers aren't too beat up. And But it just, yeah, and then uh, as soon as we were able to record tape to tape, you go up to the store and, and rent a movie and then record tapes, you know, get fit five of them onto a, onto a blank tape, and that begat my, my movie collecting. Um, becoming a father very young, I was home a lot, so I would to start collecting more movies and things as well. And it's this monster 8,000, 10,000 film collection I have now and all the records. I mean, I don't even know how many there are. Um, they're, they're organized and alphabetical chronologically in order. And, um, but I had never bothered to count them. So I don't know how many there are. And didn't you say you just have like a Microsoft document to, to keep track of everything? Uh, for the movies. Yeah. I started a, I started early on, fortunately, a Word document in the 90s when I started collecting actual original store-bought copies instead of just tape-to-tape stuff. Which, And so I kept a, a log of that, and to this day, I keep adding to it. I've, I think it's, I don't know, 140, 150 pages, maybe even more than that. That's amazing. <laughs> it's just a single document? It's not like backed up anywhere? No, it's just, it's a Word document, and I've saved it on a, on a thumb drive and all that, and a but I, Justin, I got to say, man, I mean, as I've been, especially in the past few months, as I'm going through all my stuff, I'm just standing back. I'm looking, I'm, I'm 52 years old and all this death and horror and violence and gore and anger and in the music and the, these films, I'm just wondering how much more I have in me to watch them. I collect them, but I don't necessarily really watch them. Um, the movie club that we do is, is kind of revitalized by actual sitting through the films, but it's, it's almost more of a habit at this point. Um, yeah. Do you still feel compelled to continue collecting or do you feel like you're winding down? Well, as of last uh, Black Friday, what is a couple of days ago, I just, my, my heart leapt with joy when I saw that Ebola syndrome's coming out on Blu-ray uncut. <laughs> and uh, I can't, I can't okay. explain. I, I, I consider myself a calm, happy, kind person. And, but it just this, uh, all this darkness in these films, I just, if I didn't know me and I walked into that room, I would think I was a maniac. So, right. Um, yeah. Police might come knocking on your door to resolve those old cases. Jeez. Yeah. I just, I don't have it. I've, I've been in two fights in my life, I think. So I don't really think I have that violent side like that, but. Uh, it's never something I would have, you know, pegged you for um, based on your, your demeanor. Yeah, but just, what, what do you think? I mean, do you feel like that's a way that you're able to, to process those kinds of feelings or um, is it something else? Boy, that's a, a level of introspection. Uh, in, uh, in Buddhism, there's six uh, modes of existence. And one of them is called the hungry ghost where just you want to surround yourself and you've got this eternal craving for things. And it might just be, I have some sort of hungry ghost complex. So they just continue building this behemoth of a collection of 
movies and music and comic books and and it's uh i mean it should be a museum at some point i would think or maybe just burn it all down and get it off the planet (laughs) (laughs) i don't know or maybe you could sell it and retire that's potentially too i mean they are the finest copies available of all these uh of any of these films and most evenings i'll Brenda and I'll lay down and watch Perry Mason or something that's coming in off the antenna, you know. Um, right. That's uh, so funny. Does it, do you feel like it it soothes you in some way to to possess them or what what do you think is the root of the compulsion? I think that was probably it a, a ways back but it's just become um a point where I'm I'm in too deep and I can't stop now. Um, <laughs> my friend Kendall who I met a couple of years ago, he wrote a song in the last year called desire and one of the lines is uh and once you have all you need your possessions possess you but you just want to be free and i think you might have wrote that examining my, my collections and i think that it's, it's becoming more and more true and it's possessing me more than i possess them right but you feel like you still have a need for more or just anything new that's out there or anything collectible that yeah it's hits a, the market I mean, if I had to pare it all down, I'd keep the Universal and the Hammer films, the classic horror stuff, and I'm just thrilled at the, the the picture quality and all the 4K scanning they're doing. It's just a dream come true compared to the fuzzy dupes that I used to have to put up with. But it's just, uh, it's taken on a life of its own. I'm looking to my right here, and here's a stack of stuff I need to add to the list and go file. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, it's I wish I knew that much about myself as to why I still do that. Um, I've cut down... <laughs> um, I was just laid off after 18 years of the same job. So I've I've obviously pared it down and looking to start some, some new endeavors, but uh, yeah, it's, it, it it pains me to, to turn them down. Like I'm not even planning to watch this film. I already have a copy of it on VHS. Why do I have to have this? (laughs) Well, I'll, I'll quit prying into your, (laughs) into your personal psychology. If, if, If you don't need those questions in, this question's answered, then I certainly do. Oh, I'm just curious. I, I mean, I used to, I used to be sort of obsessive about a few things, but um, I'm not anymore. And I like, I, I really don't. I, I'm in, working in the opposite direction, trying to get rid of everything I have. Um, so I guess I'm just curious to know because, and as you know, my brother is a collector too. And mm-hmm. I just wonder what drives it. If it's, you know, if you're if it is the hungry ghost, you're trying to fill some kind of hole, or if it's like, you know, nobody else has this, therefore I want it, or, you know, it's, I need to complete some imagined, you know, ultimate collection or what, I don't know. I'm just curious. Yeah, that is a big part of it. Your brother and I have taken a lot of delight in the things that pop up available for sale. And we discussed that and he, he sends me links to things that, that he discovers and I let him know when I see something that's coming up. So, yeah, he's got a similar, a similar need for that or a similar desire. Yeah, to have. And he also likes the organizational aspect of it. He, he likes to be. He likes to make lists and categorize things. That's absolutely it too. Just knowing where everything is and, uh, and and getting lost in the process, I think, is part of it. It's maybe it's a form of meditation, alphabetizing and the. Yeah, does it feel meditative? It does. Yeah, I, just the other night, I can't, couldn't believe it was two in the morning. I started at nine o'clock, and it seemed like I'd been there an hour and a half. And next thing I know, it's two. So getting lost in the zone. 
So, can we uh, can we talk about listen to days? Yeah, speaking of the zone, that uh, yeah, I mean that was uh, uh, Bill and I recorded music. I mean, he would come over. He was a guitar player, just brilliant guitar player, and we'd record um, two to three, four nights a week before Brenda came along. When I was raising my kids solo, my my wife flew off the handle, and anyway, I got my kids back, and I raised them solo for five years, and. Um, Bill would come over for half that time and we'd record late into the evening, um, not necessarily writing songs, but just more kind of a f- jumping into the fray in tandem. We'd grab sounds or find some, find different sounds or patches and just go for it, hit record and just pure pumped creativity straight from the, the source instead of being, you know, worked out and painstakingly um, harmonized or anyway so we would just it was just a challenge it was almost like a like martial arts on on our fretboards and it was just so rewarding and so fun i couldn't couldn't wait till he'd come over again and i just happened to record everything we did or most of it and the recordings just stacked up and stacked up and after 26 months i had 54 55 hours of us just going for it so um he met a, a lady at that you know around that after, after that time, and then Brenda came along, and next thing I know, I'm uh, looking at all this and starting to give it some sort of order. And uh, simultaneously, a dear friend of mine from childhood who used to make those hyper tapes with me, um, Kurt, um, started having uh, attacks by controllers. He first announced them in March of 99 um, when I was recording the first Listen CD with a different guitar player named Lauren who was best friends with Bill, who would later be the other guitarist on Listen To. But Kurt came in and sat down and told us about the controllers and what they were doing to him. And and after a year or so, I just, he was not letting up. He was absolutely serious about it. And he wasn't taking any funky drugs that I was aware of. And so I sat him down, um, kind of like an early podcast. It was April Fool's Day 2000. And I had a studio out in Mill Creek. And I put a microphone in front of him and he spoke for, he filled up three CDs and without repeating himself about the, in this detail of this this universe of these controllers and what they're doing, and I was absolutely fascinated. So I made a I gave him the CDs, and um, he put them in a storage unit. And over the years, I, I also had a, a a phone. Remember those the answering machines in the '90s and the early 2000s? You had a cassette, and it would just yeah. go, go onto a cassette. So rather than hit rewind and reuse the tape, I would just never hit rewind and I'd fill up the tapes and throw them in a drawer and throw in a fresh one. So I have sort of a chronological uh, study of Kurt over time from when we were little kids making hyper tapes up through the years of these these messages. And then later these long voicemails he would leave me when he was homeless. He he literally, I mean, I was raising kids. I My heart went out for him and I'd, I'd give him things here and there when I could, but he was living on the streets and then he'd leave these long messages about the torment so I had hours and hours of Kurt's voice chronologically about his, from being a kid all the way up through just being tormented by these controllers. So I started weaving his voice to the music that Bill and I had done. And uh, it, was, it started to become really powerful that his voice, his whispery, mysterious voice with these messages over the music just became hypnotic for me. And talk about being in the zone, hours would go by and I'd, I would literally stitching syllable by syllable to the music, Kurt's complaints and his, his struggles and his pleadings and his, and his good days too. Verizon Addict. 
And uh, when I asked him about those three CDs that we had recorded back on April 1st of 2000, and he said, I think they're still in my storage unit. So we went to a storage unit that he hadn't been to in five years and it's being automatically paid for by the state or whatever. So he didn't have the key. We had to get the manager down there with a grinder and he's taken the, he's got the grinder and sparks are flying on the, on the, uh, the padlock and we get in there and we're digging through all these old dot matrix printers and this, this relics and sure enough we found him in this old cigar box there they were those three original cds of him when he first laid it all out so perfect timing i was able to stitch those in at the beginning starting chapter five there's there's 40 cds in the in less than two days so starting chapter five i was able to get it chronologically uh worked so that the listener in listening to all 39 40 cds would understand how and where and at the levels of, a, of of the controllers and what they were doing to him. And I'd write lyrics from their point of view, from his point of view, bring in vocalists to to sing the parts and just create, crafted this, this Kurt, Mc, I'm not gonna say his last name, Kurt, this is your life. This is, you know, and uh, oddly enough, when the album was completed, um, I don't want to blow the, the ending, but it has a happy ending where the, the, the where he's free of the torment. And uh, as soon as I had that done, um, he, he said he wanted to try to find a place to live. So I found a, a friend who had an open room and he moved in. And then shortly thereafter, he moved into Bill's house, the guitarist. I'd spent 10 years weaving his voice to Bill's guitar and they had never met before. And now they were living together. <laughs> oh, wow. So um, can, can you say, sorry to interrupt, but can you say a little bit about what, what his claims were as far as the controllers go, like who they were, what they were. Well, they were, uh, they put, how they controlled him. Sure. They, um, he was tricked into signing some papers in a city named called Monroe nearby here. And he, there's a doctor there. I'm not going to mention who he claims put implants in his head over his ears. And they were, um, they had recognized that Kurt had had some sort of psychic powers on some level, which I will not deny um, he, he is able to, or at times pick numbers out of my head, or he's able to say things that are just that come true. Brenda, my, my wife, who's a, a, a skeptic on, on these sorts of things, just throws her hands in the air and just says, I believe him. I've seen enough to know that he's got a foot behind the curtain. So because of that, 
talent or torment or curse that he has, they realize that these implants would be far more powerful for them to slip between the third and fourth dimensions and essentially loot us of, of energy, of, uh, of, of, of um, resources. Of A lot of the, the reason that Kurt believes that there's so much sadness and anger in the world today is because of the, uh, the controllers manifesting their malevolent plans here for their own benefit later in a century or so when they're um, when they can come back and harvest it all. So this story documents all of that. And, and, uh, yeah, and the, who does he, who does he say they are or where are they? Well, they're, they're mostly malevolent electronic spirits, but they're in the fourth dimension. And just as we in the third dimension can control the second dimension with film or flip books or animation they can, in the fourth dimension, can manipulate us in the third dimension in a very similar way. So that uh, we have far less control over things that we do. And they can, um, they can almost like a wood grain in a tree, work their way through, a, through our dimension and exploit us, carve us, whittle us, and belittle us. And they take some joy in torment and he says life is so boring in a century or so that sadists like to come back and torment people just because they can. Sick bullies with uh, with fancy toys. And uh, wow. I mean, and did he believe that was happening to everyone, or that, or just him, or like some people are more susceptible? Or well, what? he was a he was a pioneer. They were starting on him, um, and he was uh, he was trying to warn us and trying to get the word out that uh, this is happening and it's coming. And boy, it, uh, I was quite a skeptic at first as well and thought, but man, some of the stuff he's talking about is, is coming true now. Mesh implants and and uh, Elon Musk with the brain implants and the pigs being able to monitor what they're doing. It, it's I went from being a skeptic to being like, he may be onto something here, maybe not in a way that he, you know, exactly as he says, but uh, it sure seems like that's the way things are going is... Uh, husbandry of society. I placated him for all most of 99, just going, yeah, Kurt, okay, sure. But then after he was just adding so much detail, and, and again, some of these things he were saying were suddenly registering, I finally put him in front of the microphone and just said, okay, tell me everything, man. Explain this to me. And I, I was very sympathetic, and I have been ever since. Um, I've lost some friends over the years, uh, and uh, so I just want to hold on to the ones that, that go all the way back. Old friends are a rare thing anymore. Lost two of them a couple of years ago. Both of them are on the album as well, Max and Paul. Mm. Uh, so, um, 
yeah, it's mostly just out of uh, it just seemed like it was they were working in tandem. This all this music, all this the statement. I wanted to put it all together and to, and give Kurt a happy ending. I wanted to, you know, the four hundredth song of the album. It, it is a happy ending, and he's and suddenly after that was done, he was he's painting. He's got his head together. He was you know he's, he's building a. He's building some um, electrical uh, apparatuses out there on the property. He's got you know wind power, and he's interested in, in in converting washing machines into into these things that can that can you put into a stream and generate electricity. So he's got quite a mind on him. Um, his father was a psychologist and um, of some notorious. Uh, <laughs> he had some bad things happen. He was I don't want to go too much into detail. He's dead now, but uh, he uh, abused his position and power, but his mind power over his clients was something to behold. Kurt's older brother is a multimillionaire. He owns a plastics company that uh, everyone uses. So that family has some high IQ in there. So to see that level of intelligence go so deep into the uh, the underbrush of, of malevolent psychic uh, things, it, I hope that explains some of my intrigue with his story. For sure. Well, and just that he's your friend and you're wanting to stay by him. It's, it seems like a big part of it. Yeah. So, so it took you 10 years to compile, to, to create that album. From the music recording till the point where it was, uh, where it was done. Yeah. It's about 10 years. Um, and you're fairly certain it's the longest album in the world. In the yeah. History. Yeah, it's uh, 48 hours, 57 minutes, and 17 seconds. And uh, I think there was uh, some, uh, the closest, I mean, I didn't even mean for that to be the, the reason for it. It just ended up being that long. In fact, I chopped out five hours of music that I thought didn't sound inspired. I cut out anything that I thought wasn't up to snuff. So um, that left 48 hours of music. And, and uh, I'm pretty sure it's the longest concept album. There was some satanic Norwegian piano player that has like a two day long album, but this is him playing piano by himself and sitting record. This is a full on concept album where nearly every song has something to add to the narrative. Right. And didn't you say that Kurt in some ways credits the, the completion of the album with his being healed or. Yeah. He says it's almost like, a, almost like a Pandora's box as if I, I gathered up all of that negativity and all of the, malevolence and the controllers and put him into a box. He's terrified to listen to the album. He's heard some of it as we've driven around, but he keeps it on a shelf. And every time he feels, uh, I don't know, he says he, he looks at it a lot and it knows that a lot of that is in there and it, it gives, gives him peace to know that it's out of him and safely in the box. So, and he doesn't feel like he's being controlled at all now? No, not, not nearly at the level he was. No, they still like to, to check in on him and, and kick him in the, the ribs, so to speak, once in a while. But by and large, he's got, him, he's got his mind back. Wow. That's pretty cool. And can you describe the, the, the puzzle that you can make? Uh, yeah. Um, in conceiving how to deliver this music, at, you know, at this much music, I realized if I do them in, in CDs, and each CD is a chapter, um, I just slowly built upon the idea that, uh, hey, wait a minute, if, uh, if every chapter has a slipcase and all 40 of these slipcases have, you know, are one piece of a puzzle, you could put them all together and create an image. So, um, boy, it's a lot of work to get everybody together. You see there's, there's four, 
five, six guys on the cover and then Butters the Bulldog. It took months of organizing just to get everybody together on one day. And we went out to Bruce's place and that main image was shot in Bruce's living room. And he was kind enough to allow us to set up the clay stuff and kind of build the concept around it. Listen One, the original CD that was the last album of the 1900s, came out December 31st, 99. Um, Bruce was enamored with that. He loved the music and he was he really liked the way the cover turned out, that we, we used his, his clay heads on there and the, the werewolf. And um, so he was happy to contribute to Listen To. And it just, um, yeah, it was really nice of him to allow that. And I remember him saying congratulations when I finally presented it to him because he knew how long and how much effort went into it. And, so, um, but the main image, yes, there's uh, all six of us there. And then I added in things, there's there's doubles. There's, it's almost like, um, oh, what's that that uh, newspaper, um, Hocus Focus, where you find the differences between the two the two illustrations. And, oh, right. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of inspired by that. Uh, I, I put two dozen matching pairs of things on the cover of the album, so you can... Uh, you can find, once you make the image, you can look in there and, and find two dozen identical objects. There's two of the same thing. So that's fun. And then the CD art, the art on the CDs themselves are uh, a slight variation on the cover art. So you set the CDs on top of the puzzle once it's complete and they overlap and spell out a word, which you need to know at the end of the 400th song. So you as one of the 100 box holders can do your part to... Uh, to smack the controllers back by following the instructions and at the very last second of the album, slamming the first CD down onto the, onto the shrine and saying the secret word almost, it's almost our way of fighting back against the fourth dimension with, uh, these, uh, kinetic, uh, circuit closings from people in different parts of the world at different time points, fighting the controllers with this, uh, this counter spell. <laughs> I love it. That's so great. Well, and I'm honored to be one of the uh, one of the 100 oh, excellent. holders. Thank you. Um, I, I've yet to put the puzzle together. Um, do, you, do you put the you put the disc with its corresponding slipcase? Uh, take all the CDs out um, of the slipcases and then do the cover, and then you can start looking at the CD and finding where it belongs. There's a difference. Okay. There's a like a 10 second difference between the photo used for the main image and then the image used for the CDs. And I directed everybody to do something. So you can, when you put the CDs onto the cover, it's going to change the image almost like a fourth dimensional 10 second delay between the, the layers there. So it's, it's sort of a, a talisman or a, uh, um, a way into stepping in and, and, um, between the third and fourth yes it, exactly just as if it's it's in motion um in a fourth dimensional meat trail of, of motion from where it began and where, where it ends up and then uh you, it spells out a word but you have to look at the order of the the cds look at the numbers on the cds once you've got the letters all and it, it's an anagram that anagram is actually the secret word you need to say to close the the kinetic circuit when you bring the cd down onto the the shrine on the cover. Okay. And you're supposed to do that as the last second of music is playing. There's a countdown from uh, Dr. Piper. Uh, okay. I'm uh, not there yet. I'm only on disc five. Okay. So, okay. So you, it's going to be a little while. Right. Yeah. That's fully, uh, uh, it's fine. There's no problem. I don't expect anyone to, <laughs> to, to binge it, but uh, yeah, take your time with it. But it's, 
you know, the packaging was just fun. I just developed it. And just as the ideas kept coming, I was able to actualize them. And you see how there's two boxes. It took eight prototypes before the boxes would fit together properly. So, uh, yeah, they fit properly. It's it just a lot of work went into the physical creation of the, of the box set, as well as just the music and the story. Yeah, no doubt. It's a pretty epic uh, concept. To bring it to fruition is quite impressive on all levels. And to know that you like sort of saved your friend in the process is pretty awesome. Yeah, mission accomplished. I mean, I I, I lost my ass on I mean financially on this. I know I mean to the tune of five digit five figures, but I don't care. I wanted it to exist. I I've been in bands. I've played shows. I've this was much more to me than just a another band with another album. This was all of my magic uh, that I could and all of my understanding of the cosmos and the interconnectivity between dimensions and and coincidence and how they link together. I put, it was almost half the time, it almost seemed like the mouse was a Ouija board where I would just, I wasn't even in control of what I was doing with my hand. It was just, my mind was doing it for me. So um, wow. a lot of it's explained in that last song. Um, all the, much of the veneer is pulled back and Dr. Piper explains everything. He's a, Dr. Piper's the, the little, little man on the cover above Bruce. That's Dr. Peter Wolf. He's uh, 88 now. And just the most rich Hungarian accent. I just had to put him to to work on this. And he played keyboards on the album, and he became this this character that shows himself throughout the album, and then finally reveals himself at the end. Um, funny connection: the first hypertape Kurt and I ever made was uh, from a comic book about a werewolf. And then when Kurt came in in 1999 to tell me about the controllers and Lauren, we were recording the song Peter and the Wolfman. And then who at the end of the album is the person that solves the story and brings him peace? Dr. Peter Wolf, who I didn't know when I started the, uh, the, the original listen. So this wolf, wolfman, werewolf uh, undercurrent kind of... That's really cool. Yeah, it established itself throughout the album. So, Could, could you share a couple of the other... You had some other weird things happen, some coincidences or psychic moments with Kurt, right? Yeah, Um well, uh, boy, my two of my best friends died in front of me at a car in a car crash, June eighteenth of nineteen ninety. Ben and Tony, and Ben was born Friday Valentine's Day, nineteen sixty nine. And I mentioned my son was born Friday Valentine's Day, ninety two, and my daughter Friday Valentine's Day, ninety seven. And there were only five Friday Valentine's Days over thirty years. So I feel like that was Ben saying, "Hey, man, from from the beyond there," but. The other guy who died in the car, Tony, he and Kurt were very close. And uh, so Kurt and I had just had a sort of a mutual mourning over that crash. And they died in, a, in an orange Volkswagen, which you will see throughout the artwork on the album. Um, I actually went back 20 years to the day just to say a little prayer, you know, and what should come down the road, this little backcountry road, Northeast 50th and Happy Valley, an orange Volkswagen with blacked out windows. I thought for sure it was Ben and Tony. I just, what else, how else could it be? No other cars had been there for 20 minutes. And here comes an orange Volkswagen right at five o'clock when the, the crash happened 20 years later, but it turned into the only driveway uh, next to the place where the car crash was. And so I kind of incorporated that into it. But while I was standing out there and that car was pulling up inside my vehicle, Kurt had called me and was leaving a message while he was still homeless saying that this, uh, the car was traveling slowly down the road. If you listen to the first 10 or 20 seconds of the first song on chapter 32, it's that message. And it's as if he was looking out of my eyes describing what I was seeing. 
Friday, June 18th at 6.48 p.m. Urgent message. It was cold. It was real cold. It was a deep dark night. I didn't want it to be this way. They did. Then it all started when the car rolled in. Nobody knew it then. That switch would be related our destiny for the next 20 years. CDs that we recorded back in April 1st of 2000, he, one of the things he said was, I, I was speaking with Richard Wright of Pink Floyd, and I told him I was, I was rowing a rowboat through, the, through the, the stars, but I'd fallen overboard. And the week that, I, or, I mean, within a week of me having this material, Pink Floyd's Endless River CD came out. And what's on the cover? The front cover is Richard Wright standing in a boat, oaring himself through the clouds, and the back cover is the empty rowboat as if he had fallen overboard. I mean, that's nuts. It's just many, many, many things I'm trying to recall. There's so many where there's just winks from the beyond of, of uh, I'm on the right track or, uh, or this is actually happening, Greg. <laughs> right. Um, what, what was the dream you had recently about the wire across the road? Oh, I, I had a dream that, uh, well, one of the characters on the album who plays on a few of the songs was a friend of mine who just over time would betray me at every opportunity he had, apparently, whether it be my wife or my finances or my musical endeavors. Anyway, uh, eventually I had to just kind of say goodbye to the guy. And he, uh, he had called Kurt um, that night and after a year of not speaking with him. And I guess they talked for a couple of hours on the phone. And then within a couple of hours, I had been sleeping and I had a dream that I went up to Gary's place and um, was driving back down and the entire road was blocked off with barbed wire. And I, I, I got out and tried to figure out a way around it. And I mentioned there's an owl up in the tree that was uh, obviously not on my side. So I had to climb into a trap door in the ground, which went into a storm drain and I went to the mouth of the apartment complex and there was snow and I, so I had to go back and, but it was just, it was almost as if I was getting caught in the web again or the threat of it had presented it itself. And, you know, God loved the guy and I hope he resolves his inner demons. But another one of those six modes of uh, existence that Buddha says is the, uh, the hell state where you're just eternal anger 
constantly at war and fights with himself and others. And I think that's where he is. So I kind of forgive him on that level that much of it's probably out of his hands, but it's, you know, a scorpion's going to sting you if you give him a, r- a ride across the river. So it just, right. um, but yeah, he actually cursed the album. Kurt was living with him briefly. I mentioned Kurt got off the streets, but he initially was staying there with, with this guy. And he uh, actually was so mad at me for finishing the album and wasting all that time when he and I could have been working on his album that he set up some sort of configuration on a table of crystals and dimes and meaningful objects and was literally cursing my album and my house that for failure and, and hoping the house would burn down or fall into the ground. or and Jesus. But Kurt was standing behind him and he says, Greg, I was arcing his energies to the right so it missed your house. Oh, man. Did anything happen around your house oh, to the right that, during that time? Not that did, I could, or did you feel, I mean, did you feel scared of that curse? I, I, yeah, in a way. I mean, I sense my hair stands on end when some, when I feel like something like that is happening. And I, I certainly was being sensitive to it. And I know when he's up to it. I, I just, he and I were friends and we're very, very close. So he knows a lot of my, he knows a lot of my trap doors and side doors into my, my psyche and my consciousness. And I think he taps into that. Um, hmm. And I can't believe I'm saying this stuff out loud because it just sounds so ridiculous in a in an app-filled, you know, logical, technological society. But I just feel like there's a lot of energies and powers that we've let go as we've evolved as human beings. And they're there for the taking, magic or whatever, if uh, if one knows how to do it. So um, I agree, man. I mean, I'm, I'm fully into that kind of stuff. And I believe that we all have, you know, capacities and abilities beyond our own knowing yeah. uh, and we can tap into those if we know how and certain some people i mean unfortunately people use them for nefarious means but um i think there's all kinds of magic and goodness that can happen too yeah it, it seems as though they would know though it's almost like kamikaze karma i mean if you're gonna if you're gonna damage somebody like that it's gonna come back and hit you tenfold but sometimes they, if it's kamikaze, they don't care as long as they hit their target, you know. Right. Or if they're in a hell state, they don't even recognize what that they're doing, you know. Precisely. They, they don't know how to stop it. Yep. They're not thinking that far ahead. They're just caught up in the moment than they, they want. They want the vengeance or the wrath. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, on that, on that subject, do you care to share the story that you shared with my brother and I about Yes, uh, Alberta ghost experience. Yeah, that, that's that's the moment where I finally said, "Okay, I believe." I was a skeptic. I was I'm practically an atheist for a lot, big part of my life. I just thought we were hurling on a ball through space, and uh, you know, good luck to us. But I, um, I uh, it was nineteen ninety ninety eight, I believe, April. Um, my wife at the time's friend Michelle and her husband just bought a Rambler. Um, up in Bothell, up on a hill, in these neatly cut one-acre lots. And uh, so I needed to do my taxes, and Chris, her Michelle's husband, who I barely knew because they'd just been married, um, he invited me to do my taxes on his computer, and it was still dial-up back then, and my computer was acting up. So I'm like, sure, that'd, that'd be great. So I brought my stuff up there to their house. They gave us a tour. I sat down, did my taxes. It took about a half hour. And uh, I came outside and uh, he offered me a beer. I grabbed a beer, sat down next to him on, a, on the porch. It's about a 25 by 25 foot porch, sliding glass door to my left. 
we're sitting on a bench with our back to a wall. And then to the right was a two steps up from the ground um, leading down to the driveway and out to the, the lawn and all that. And there's a tree next to the, the porch. And so Chris is talking. I'm taking a sip of my beer. I'm finally re- relaxed. I'm getting a bunch of money back. The kids are okay. Everything's fine. I just remember just a sense of absolute, uh, I was absolutely relaxed. And I took a sip of beer and I'm, I sit up next to him. He's kind of sitting on, sitting, leaning on his knees and talking about motorcycles or something. I was kind of half paying attention and I just kind of roll my head over onto my right shoulder and, and look at him while he's talking. And I sense something and I look behind his head and standing at the top of the stairs, I could see her from about the breasts up, um, a little old lady with a shawl and piercing blue eyes. She, um, she had her knobby knuckles holding her shawl under her chin and she was trembling like she had Parkinson's. And the look on her face was like, what are you doing here? She looked confused. She looked, uh, she looked um, bewildered. I, at first, you know, we watch a lot of people in movies and TV. So we as modern people can read people pretty quickly. My first thought was that she had forgotten something there and she had been there earlier. But I didn't want to interrupt Chris talking. So I, and she was looking at him to my, again, he's to my right and she is to his right. She's looking at him while he's talking and I'm looking at her from behind his head and I'm not moving and I'm just examining her. I'm waiting for Chris to stop talking. About 10 seconds, 12 seconds went by and finally I just felt rude. I felt like this poor woman, we got to do this. So I lean in front of Chris and look at her from in front of him and I look her right in the eye and I say, can we help you? And right when I said the word help, we locked eyes. She leaned back looking startled and was just gone. I was looking into her eyes and then I was seeing the tree branches behind her. And, um, and I said, excuse me, Chris, can we help you? And he's like, he looks over to the right, who are you talking to? And I jump up and I run around to the corner and look down the stairs and nothing. I can see an acre in every direction there. There's no one there. So I just start pacing and my heart's racing. I'm going, I can't believe I just saw this. So I sat down, I asked for a piece of paper and a pencil, and I spent 20 minutes or so drawing her, illustrating what I saw. And I did a pretty good pretty good rendition of her. And I said, that's what I saw. And they're like, okay, Greg, whatever, man, have another hit of acid. Sure, right. <sighs> and uh, of course, I'm raising kids. I'm working a suit and tie job. I'm not taking acid. So I, right. I left the, the, the illustration there. And it was a day or two later, Michelle called me up crying, saying, you aren't going to believe this, Greg, but I just got back from the neighbor's house. I'm just getting to know them. And as she had mentioned, her mom would come over here and sit on the porch with the people that lived here previously. She'd only been gone for two months. They bought the house. So her only routine the last 10 years of her life was to walk across the lawn and have tea with the previous owners of the house on that porch. And then she'd walk back again. That was her exercise. That was her routine. So... I had no way of knowing that. I didn't. And the illustration, they had photos of her and they, she brought them to me. She goes, look at that. That's her. And I go, that is her. So I saw her. I had no reason. I didn't know the backstory. And I mean, she wasn't glowing. She wasn't translucent. The light from the porch light was hitting her naturally. I, I just thought it was odd, this woman standing there. And she disappeared like bewitched, just gone. It wasn't a fade away. It was just like a, an edit, just gone. And from there on out, that changed my life. I, I know we're not alone. I know, uh, <laughs> and she had Alzheimer's, so maybe she didn't know to go to the light. Maybe she was confused. Maybe who knows? But, uh, but that changed. She was still enacting the, her daily routine. Yes. I couldn't figure out who these two guys were sitting on her porch, on her neighbor's porch. My my brother described it as if you have a big 
uh, you have a spoon and you're, you're stirring water in a pot and you remove the spoon, the, the water is going to continue to go until it finally settles. So maybe there's just an energy, a fourth dimensional energy that she had created by this pattern that was just still, that I was sensitive to, to seeing. Yeah, it's still playing itself out. That's so interesting. And I wonder if it also had to do with your, just the, the shift in your mental state from being you know, stressed out, doing taxes and worrying about life and to this moment of complete relaxation. Yeah. It went from tension to absolute, I, I can't remember being that relaxed you know, at, at that point with the young kids and all that and the, the wife was slowly flying off the handle. And, but uh, yeah, I was absolutely at peace and the, the sip of beer tasted good. I'm not a big beer guy, but it's tasted good. And I just, I guess I was completely receptive and open. And that's how I just kind of stumbled into that mindset where I was able to perceive it. So, yeah, that's really cool. Wow. Um, well, I'm looking at the time and uh, thinking we should start to wrap, but is there anything you want to talk about that you didn't, that we didn't get to? Well, um, boy, it's just a lifetime of things. I've had other experiences, not so, not quite as stark and similar as that, but I've had enough confirmations that I know that, that there's something else. I'm not an atheist. I don't know if we've got anything right as far as how religion is and God or whichever religion is correct, but there is certainly something else to, to existence that we can't see that is real. I believe it. I hope uh, we're all on the right track and I hope it's a good thing, but you know, uh, <laughs> um, I appreciate the opportunity to, to, to discuss this with you. And I, I treasure your friendship. I mean, meeting you and Eric and everybody lately with this, this club, I just, I'm, I just feel like I've found a, a, a batch of really good, fine, creative, intelligent people that uh, are open to such subject matters as this. And um, thank you. Likewise, man. I'm really, yeah, I'm really happy to have you uh, come come into my life uh, at this stage. You know, as, as you said, it's hard to, you know, good friends are are hard to come by, and um, especially later in life, it's pretty it's pretty great when you meet somebody new. Yeah. And you can w welcome them in and say, let's, let's start from here and go, <laughs> you know, go in both directions. Yeah. Talk about what happened and what's going to happen. Yeah. My goal is to listen to every single one of your episodes. I think I'm 14 in now. So oh, wow. uh, I, I love you. I love your show, your voice and your, your, your manner. And it just, it just brings out the best in everyone speaking. I admit I was kind of nervous the first 15 minutes we were talking, but yeah, just uh, oh. knowing it's you, I, I, I relaxed into it and here we are. Thanks, man. That's really nice, and I'm and I'm honored that you're that you're delving in so uh, earnestly. That's great. <laughs> and let's not forget that all this began from uh, flipping through the white pages to see if Bruce Bickford happened to be in the in the in the phone book. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, and my, yeah, I only came to Bruce through my brother, and then later through Aaron, and you know, to become friends with John and Debbie and you and all of that. I think about Bruce a lot and I, you know, I knew him the least of, of any of you guys, but, um, but I felt, you know, pretty, pretty moved to be in his presence and just share what little time I did with him. Yeah. And your, your episode with him is priceless. I, I heard Bruce be interviewed over the years many times. And again, you're, you're something about you and your mannerisms, just people are warm to it. And he, yeah, it's an excellent, excellent discussion with Bruce. One of the finest that that's been recorded. Oh, thanks, man. That's really nice. It's nice to hear. Well, thank you, Justin. And I appreciate this opportunity. I love your show. And is this episode 108? I think it will be, yeah. yeah.
<laughs> Thank you, Greg. I really appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate you sharing everything and um, be, yeah, just being a supporter and a friend and everything. It's great. It's good to know you. Yeah, you too, my friend. Thanks, man. It was great talking to you. I'll talk to you soon. You too, Justin. See you, man. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was my friend Greg McClellan. Uh, if you want to go check out his 48-hour-long concept album, Listen Two Days, um, which includes the original album, Listen, um, go check it out at giveitalisten.com. That's all one word, giveitalisten.com. And there you can get a teeny tiny sense of uh, just what a mind-bogglingly involved project this was. Um, And as I said before, just truly impressive. So uh, hats off to you, Greg, and thanks for talking with me. Um, As Greg mentioned at the end there, uh, the reason he and I ultimately came to know each other is because of Bruce Bickford. Um, so if you want to hear my interview with Bruce, you can find that back in the archives. I think it's number 22. Um, and also I interviewed my friend Brett Ingram, who made a documentary about, about Bruce, about Bruce. Um, and some of the animation is included in that. And I think also some of Greg's, some of the music from Greg's album. But um, if you want to find that, go to brettingram.com, B-R-E-T-T-I-N-G-R-A-M. And the movie is called Monster Road. And I believe you can buy it, buy a download or buy the physical thing or both. Um, and it's amazing, truly worth seeing. So you all, all of you, I love you. Uh, thanks for sticking around. Those of you who have, through the thick and thin of it all, it's been a little thin lately, Um, but things are changing, things are opening up a bit in my world, and I hope in the world, and your world as well. So um, here's to uh, good things happening, and lots of love and creativity and um, sharing of those things with each other. Uh, I hope that's what's coming down the pike. And uh, I'll see you next time. You're the greatest.